Welcome everyone to the podcast. This is Andre from The Mental Elf, uh, and I'm here with Professor Oscar Barberin, Professor of Psychology and African American Studies at the University of Maryland. Uh, welcome, Oscar, to the podcast. Really lovely to be talking to you Hi. in Baltimore. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. We've got a fantastic view, actually. I've only just noticed out the window there. We're looking at the uh, Harbour Place on a very sunny morning here yeah. in Baltimore. It's the Together for Action conference, so the Global Alliance for Behavioural Health and Social Justice. What's your relationship with this organisation? I've been a member of the organisation since 1975 and wow. uh, served on its executive board and was president in 2001 to 2003. So what does it mean to you? That's a long relationship. Yeah, it's a special organization because it brings together people who are really invested in mental health but are progressive. Progressive in the sense that they understand that mental health is not only determined by uh, personal issues or genetics, but that the environment, the social environment, has an important uh, role to play. And so how we do research, given that, um, it's not just in a lab, <laughs> or I guess sometimes it is, but give us a bit of a flavor of the kind of research that you do and the kind of people that you work with and how you take, how you do that research to ensure that it has an impact. So as a psychologist, I was trained in family therapy uh, and sort of behavioral approaches, and I was interested in applying that to help uh, both children and families. I had the opportunity to work with a wonderful colleague, Mark Chesler, who's a social psychologist at the University of Michigan. And we worked together on a project uh, to understand the stressors and the coping responses of families whose children had a serious chronic illness. In this case, it was cancer. Uh, after that project, I was, uh, had an appointment in the School of Social Work and had the opportunity to train social workers who were interested in working with families. So we created this program called Congruence Training. And the idea was to utilize what we learned in the studies with Mark Chesler about the stressors that mothers and fathers and siblings and kids faced, and to help them, help families to understand. So we, the social workers would go into the hospitals we were working along with the medical staff there, identify families who were not immediately at the time of diagnosis, but had been living with it for a while, um, and ask them if they were interested in, in uh, some of the kind of help that we might provide. And so we did assessments in the sense of talking with them about their situation, uh, but also did home visits because some of the key people were not at the hospital. So it's usually the mother and the child. And so the father and the and so we would go into the homes, the team of social uh, of social work interns, and they would start with a family discussion about what the experience had been, the stresses that they were experiencing, and then the the goal was to help them to understand their different coping strategies. And so for one of the things that mothers experienced a great deal of strain because they were the ones in the hospital. They were the ones who had to uh, learn about the medical regimes, the medications, et cetera. And the siblings were often at home, worried, uh, not receiving much attention. Uh, and so they had their own struggles. And the fathers, typically, because the mothers often had to stop work, were the chief supports of the family. 
And so they were engaged in going out to work. And so in some ways, they had the relief of being away. So one of the things that I learned that was really funny was uh, this notion of learned incompetence. Um, and that was what the fathers developed. <laughs> they developed, well, I don't know how to do this. I don't understand this. And so they would often get out of some, doing some of the more difficult things. And so one of the things that we could help them understand was the nature of the support that their wives needed uh, if uh, she was to manage and to be available to the child. Yeah. I'm really interested in the kind of ripples that you have <clears throat> across families and you know, wider uh, groups when you have a kind of child with cancer. But I guess there's also ripples experienced within the various sort of health and social care professionals of a cancer diagnosis in terms of the mental well-being of that child and the family. How did that work? What did that work teach you about how well all the different healthcare staff do mental yeah. health? Yeah, so one thing we found that uh, many of the uh, people who were involved were wonderful people, humane, but they had their own stressors. They felt like they needed to know everything. They found it difficult to tell families uh, hard stories when things were not going well. Um, and in, in many cases, they coped by differentiating. And so one service would look at a child in a particular way, another, you know, the surgeons versus um, the oncologists versus others. Uh, and so there was kind of breaking the child up into pieces. But there's an important point that I, from that work, uh, for me, that had to do with the social environment. I got this large grant from the NIH to study the effects of chronic, serious chronic childhood illnesses typically sickle cell, cancer, hemophilia, HIV. And so we're doing similar things that we did in the cancer study. And then in the end, uh, we were, so one of the questions was, what is the impact on ill children and their siblings? And to my consternation, what I found was when we compared siblings and ill children to their friends, there, were little, there was little difference. And all of them were distressed. But one of the things that I learned, because of the place we're working in, Detroit in the southeastern Michigan area, uh, a large African-American population, a uh, poor population, that what I discovered was that, was that poverty was more important, more salient in terms of its effects, than this life-threatening illness. Uh, so the kids who were the, the friends of ill children uh, suffered in many ways as much. And so that really turned me around to say, I really need to study poverty in the social environment. That that's, that's where a lot of the pain is. Uh, as, as painful as it is to have a child who might die, uh, poverty is a chronic uh, and unremitting challenge to uh, individuals and to families. And I guess the evidence has stacked up in the last few decades in terms of not just poverty, but the health impact of racism, the health impact of loneliness, the health impact of all sorts of other kind of socioeconomic issues. What, how do we need to do research differently to ensure that we're asking the really important questions yeah. given that evidence base? Yeah. Do you know the interesting thing, when I compare times now to when I began uh, graduate school and my early work, there is this larger conversation that's going on about poverty, about racism, about structural racism, 
Um, and it's come in many ways, but one of the forms that it takes is this question of how does the social environment, how does poverty get under the skin and influence development and mental health? And what I've found is that even scientists who are doing basic research are asking this question. Uh, and the fact that, for example, Beanie's work uh, on epigenetic influences has also shaped that discussion. And so for across the spectrum, from very basic scientific work up to uh, those who are interested in policy and the impact uh, on what society does, uh, I think are asking this question. And when you have that tied to these very salient issues of racism, uh, the murder of uh, black men uh, uh, and other people around the country, uh, that it's hard to escape that. Um, and the other thing is that when you look at societies, you know, it's just, it's inescapable, the, the idea that racism has an impact, that you see it everywhere. You see it in the schools, you see it in the communities that families must live in, and you see it across the world that it's not just the US or Great Britain or Europe, uh, but it's in many places around the world. Uh, There's some countries that used to like to claim, well, we don't have race, this notion of race, and the notion is different. The notion of race is very different in Africa than it is here in the US, but you still have those kinds of differentiations, and perhaps it's on religious grounds, uh, and some groups are more persecuted for that than others. What advice would you give to a researcher who's starting out interested in tackling inequalities with their work? What would your recommendation be? I guess the first is get your head on straight. Be clear about why you're doing this, what your motivation is. Uh, The second is that you don't have to do everything yourself, that there are colleagues, people who, uh, I guess, who form a coalition so that whose skills can complement your own. And the third is to associate with people who have similar interests uh, so that you can both challenge, you know, it shouldn't be speaking to the choir in a sense you're reinforced, but to challenge and expand how you think about things. <coughs> and I guess finally, I'm interested in your thoughts on breaking down the barriers between our professional silos, because you've spoken already about the importance of people from different disciplines, you know, the epigenetics crowd, for example. Mental health research does need to be truly multidisciplinary, doesn't it? It needs to involve, you know, not just psychologists and social scientists, but, you know, mathematicians and physicists and, you know, environmentalists and town planners and philosophers, you know, the list is endless. How do we encourage and promote that kind of cross-disciplinary working? Yeah, so the very fact that you asked this question means that there there are barriers often that stand in the way. Um, and I think uh, organizations such as uh, the one that we're in uh, is, is an example of how you bring you. So you create communities, create a place for people to come together where they might not be natural. Uh, it's not natural in hospital settings. It's not natural in universities because we're all divided by discipline. Um, but if you have organ- associations like this where people have the opportunity. The other is foundations can fund the bringing together of people. Governments can fund uh, and support the bringing together of people. Organizations. Uh, I'm uh, working with the um, 
International Union of Psychological Sciences. And the idea is that um, we know that there are important problems, uh, climate change, for example, uh, terrorism, uh, religious uh, insensitivities, uh, that those require more than psychologists and that to have a broader discussion in mind. And so using the power of these organizations to convene and to bring people together who are interested in sort of stretching and working together. Thank you so much for joining me. It's been a real pleasure speaking to you. I know you've got to chair the opening keynote, so I'm going to let you go now. Well, thank you very much. Okay, I appreciate that. Mm -hmm.